0: Shelly Schlender.
1: And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2016.
0: Coming up, we'll hear about the man who first measured carbon dioxide.
1: And we'll talk with the maker of electric airplanes for quiet operation.
0: And local citizen scientist Pam Piambino would tell us about the wonderful world of moths and how you too can host a summer moth party. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with this report from How on Earth's Alejandro Soto.
2: People who are fans of ancestry sites know that most humans come from a melting pot. Research published last week in the journal Science shows that's also true for wolves and coyotes. Biologists from Princeton University have demonstrated that medium-sized wolf species that are historically known as the North American Red Wolf and the Eastern Wolf, are actually hybrids of the large North American Grey Wolf and its somewhat smaller cousin, the Coyote. By comparing the genomes of wolves and coyotes throughout North America, the Princeton researchers concluded that the Red Wolf's ancestry is roughly 25% Grey Wolf and 75% Coyote, while the Eastern Wolf around 75% Grey Wolf and 25% Coyote. The researchers suspect these mixes evolved in response to a human-created shrinkage of their environment. Since wolf-coyote hybrids are smaller than a pure gray wolf, they require less food to survive. These new results may affect how wolves are listed through the Endangered Species Act, and the results also might affect how we draw the tree of life. Whereas biologists once set the boundary between species based on an inability to interbreed, these new genome measurements demonstrate that interspecies breeding may be a common and natural response to a changing environment. For How on Earth, I'm Alejandro Soto.
1: Have you ever experienced the strange beauty of a total solar eclipse? If not, Then you have a good opportunity next year on August 21st, 2017, when the path of a total solar eclipse will travel from Oregon to South Carolina, coming close to Colorado as it crosses Wyoming's Grand Teton National Park, along with Wyoming towns of Pavilion, Shoshone, Riverton, and Casper. There are two types of eclipses, lunar and solar. The more common lunar eclipse occurs when the Earth passes between a full moon and the sun, casting a shadow on the moon. Several lunar eclipses happen every year, and they're visible anywhere the moon is visible. A total solar eclipse happens every 18 months on average, and it's only visible from less than half a percent of the Earth's surface. Solar eclipses take place when the moon passes between the earth and the sun, casting a moon shadow that traces a narrow path across the earth. Only people under the moon shadow can see a solar eclipse, and few people see a solar eclipse that passes over an ocean or uninhabited land. Because the eclipse next August will be in North America, people from all over the country and all over the world will be seeking a way to witness it, especially in regions known for clear skies, such as Wyoming. Wyoming hotels and campsites may fill up fast, so if you want to see it for yourself, plan ahead now. And if you miss this one, the next total solar eclipse over North America will be in 2024 with a path going from Mexico to Maine. Or, if you don't want to leave home to see a total solar eclipse, then stick around until the year 2045. That's when the shadowy path of a solar eclipse will go right over central Colorado.
0: For a professional science event coming up just this week, consider the American Psychological Association Annual Convention, which starts this Thursday in Denver. It will feature over 1,000 sessions covering the entire field of psychology. Then next weekend, starting on Thursday, August 11th, is the National Ancestral Health Symposium, taking place this year at CU Boulder The Ancestral Health Society is a community of scientists, healthcare professionals, and citizens who collaborate to understand health challenges from an evolutionary perspective. Find out more by doing a Google of Ancestral Health Symposium.
1: Friday, will offer a contemplative look at science when the Boulder Shambhala Center hosts the event Living Beyond Hope and Fear, Social Confidence and Climate Change. Scientists will participate in many of the Shambhala Center events. One of the leaders of the weekend is the daughter of the late Charles David Keeling, a climate researcher. Keeling devoted decades to graphing the rising carbon dioxide levels. His Keeling curve graph is credited by many scientists as the beginning of global awareness about human-caused climate change. Keeling's daughter is Emily Takahashi. Takahashi cults this music... Song for Mother Earth. As part of the Shambhala Center event, Takahashi will give a piano concert in honor of her father. For more, here's How on Earth's Kendra Kruger speaking with Emily Takahashi.
3: Emily, tell me more about what you're bringing with the piano concert. My father, Charles Keeling, was a climate scientist and he measured global levels of carbon dioxide at Mauna Loa. And he charted the rising levels of this in a graph which is known as the Keeling Curve. Most people who study climate science are familiar with it. It's sort of the baseline data set that is used to recognize that CO2 is going up. I've lived with this piece in my life very strongly just because that was my dad's work. It's been a a kind of an internal question for a long time about, you know, what can I do? I mean, we all have that question, but I feel a a certain kind of responsibility to that also. As we were developing this symposium, I kept thinking about him and I kept feeling like I'm not sure I would be doing this or any of us might be doing this exact thing if, if he hadn't been diligent in his Measurements. Not that he's solely the, the only person who did that work. There's many, many people are involved. But it just felt very appropriate to me to offer some homage to him. And he was a very fine musician and passed music on to all of our family. And I just felt like it, was, it would be a nice way to acknowledge him.
1: That's Emily Takahashi talking about her father, Charles Keeling, creator of the Keeling Curve that began documenting rising CO2 levels in the late 1950s. Thanks to Kendra Kruger for that interview. Next week's Shambhala Center event is titled Living Beyond Hope and Fear, Social Confidence and Climate Change. You can find out more on the web by checking out the Boulder Shambhala Center.
0: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and from the beauty of music, we want you to start imagining another sound. It's the rumbling of loud airplanes, especially in natural areas such as Boulder County's popular wetland preserve, Walden Ponds. Many of the people who use aircrafts to tow themselves up in gliders or just to drop from parachutes or otherwise land at the local airports, many of those airplanes are very noisy so that They are enjoying the beauty of the world, but they're also adding a lot of sound to it. The constant drone of airplanes over natural areas has many nature lovers wishing that planes could be a little quieter. These days, some quieter options are starting to develop, thanks to tinkerers and scientists who are building reliable, electric-powered airplanes. One of the early leaders in the field of electric-powered airplanes is Randall Fishman. His company is ElectroFlyer. Fishman designs quiet, electric-powered ultralight airplanes, and he even has special gliders. They get their boost from quiet electric engines that can be turned off once the airplane is gliding. Here's Randall Fishman.
4: Uh, my name is Randall Fishman, and the name of the company is Electric Aircraft Corp.
0: In Boulder, Colorado, in the natural areas, guess what the noisiest sound
1: is?
4: Actually, the reason I uh, first built the first uh, electric ultralight trike was, because I, I love flying trikes, but they were so noisy and they vibrated your body, I was hoping there was a better way. So that's that started the whole thing.
0: When you started designing electric-powered aircraft, how much quieter are they?
4: Oh, the first one was incredibly quiet. It was a trike that looks like a hang glider up above. And we had a, a large prop turning 1,800 RPM for takeoff and 1,300 for cruise. And boy, it was really quiet. Just whoosh. was terrific.
0: Is there any way, do you think, that an electric aircraft could pull a glider, for instance?
4: Generally speaking, what happens is the tow plane pulls the glider and the tow plane is noisy. If you're near a place where they are launching you know and the plane keeps coming down and pulling another guy up and pulling another guy up, so it does get loud. Our take's a little bit different. We're putting electric power on motor gliders. The glider can take off by itself with the electric motor, uh, power up until it starts reaching lifts, thermals and such, and then shut the motor down. With the electric motor and the, uh, using the air currents, you could stay up all day. It's very convenient for somebody to have something like that as opposed to a glider operation, which is what you were talking about, where the tow planes keep pulling up the gliders and making a lot of noise.
0: Now, one thing that you haven't discussed is the possibility of just a very powerful electric airplane that could tow a standard glider up into the air. Are electric aircraft strong enough in their power to do that kind of job?
4: I I don't think so at the present time. Normally, when you have a tow plane, you want to be able to go back and then tow another one and then tow another one. And the weak point is the batteries. It's fine for One takeoff or two takeoffs on a single airplane go fly around for a couple of hours, hour to two hours, and then come, then land wherever you want to land and recharge. But now, if we get a a little more uh, battery capacity, which I'm hoping for. Uh, then you'd be able to do something like that.
0: You know, for electric-assist bicycles, it's very easy to swap out batteries. So there's just a whole suitcase full of batteries, and then you swap them out. Is that easy to do with electric airplanes? Not when they're flying.
4: Yeah, right, right, when you're back on the ground. Our electric aircraft, that's that's something I think they want to do for training aircraft where you – you fly the, the student around for an hour, and then the batteries are shot, and you switch out the batteries, and you have a few sets, so some are charging. But batteries are pretty expensive. Lithium batteries are pretty expensive, so uh, if you had the money, you certainly could do it. Years ago, people had done with um, lead-acid batteries and then nickel-cadmium batteries. They had done little flights for a few minutes at a time. That's all you could do because of the batteries. didn't work out because if you were only going to get a few minutes' flight, and then you had to go you know, reorganize and recharge, and it just wasn't good enough. So when the advent of lithium-ion polymer batteries, which is what we use, uh, actually I was surprised when I started using them, I started building the first track in 2005, 2006, that nobody had done it because the lithium batteries had been available for several years. And uh, that was the thing that really enabled um, an electric airplane to fly over an hour. Medium pack flies about 40 minutes, and our large pack gets about an hour and a half of flight time. You know now it's worthwhile. most people don't fly longer than not even a gas powered airplane. so now it makes sense. but before lithium batteries didn't, it really didn't at all. So we were actually the first continuously powered airplane uh, aircraft powered by batteries. after that, people realized, oh look, you really can do this with batteries, so let's let's build one So now there's lots of people doing it.
0: Do you think that we'll ever get to the point where we can have jets being powered by batteries instead of by gas, or I guess it's not gas, it's jet fuel.
4: Yeah, jet, jet fuel, right. Well, that would be a jet engine and jet fuel, but I know what you mean as far as in like an airliner, an airliner powered by electric. I think we're far away from that. I would love to see, it's actually amazing right now, you know, what you can do with batteries. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you had these little batteries and you'd read your, your comic books or something at night and the battery would run out in five minutes, it was done. The batteries I have now are wonderful. I mean, we don't appreciate how powerful they are of just a little slab of something, how much energy it holds. They call it specific energy density. That's how much energy uh, a given battery will hold per weight. Uh, so but we need a big, big advance before we can fly airliners with such a thing. And we even need a pretty good advance before we can fly regular 4C-type airplane where you can really travel. Because we're limited pretty much up to about two hours is just about as much as we can do now with the current batteries. So we need, a, we need a good advance of batteries to be able to go further. But you know what? Two hours isn't bad. Two hours ain't bad.
0: That's Randall Fishman, an electric plane enthusiast, talking about the rising interest in quiet, electric-powered airplanes, And just as a contrast, here's a little sound from Walden Ponds on a Sunday morning with the airplanes flying around that beautiful nature area. That's what the mix of gas-powered airplanes and nature sound like. Let's hope for electric, quiet airplanes sometime soon. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Stay tuned for some information about the world of moths and how you can conduct a nighttime moth-viewing party. And in honor of that topic, hear some music titled Moths Around a Candle Flame.
1: This is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. It's that time of year when butterflies, dragonflies, and other insects fill the air. Nature lovers watch many of these with the same enthusiasm that some people study birds. A more humble flying creature in the animal kingdom is the lowly moth, and it's gaining enough of a following. Some people now hold moth parties about, well, moths. Here to tell us more is citizen scientist Pam Piombino, field trip coordinator for the Boulder County Audubon Society. Welcome to Hell on Earth, Pam.
5: Good morning, Joel. Thank you for having me.
1: So may I start off with a very naive question? What's the difference between butterflies and moths?
5: Well, they are all part of the same order. But uh, butterflies tend to be more colorful because they are day flyers. Uh, the easiest difference to tell is in their antennae. They either end in a little club, which to me looks like a matchstick, or a curved, heavier area uh, on the end. The moths tend to be straight or feathered with many fine filaments.
1: So. Uh, We all know that butterflies, I guess, sip nectar like honeybees. Is that correct? Uh, They help to pollinate things, maybe. What do moths do? Moths are an incredibly
5: important part of the environment, although there are certainly um, quite a few... Who are deleterious to agriculture, and people are familiar with those horrible clothes moths. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the smell of mothballs. <laughs> yes, um, they really have a very primary role in feeding birds, bats, other insects, including the um, wasps. They the um, grizzly bears of yellowstone a scientist uh named um hillary um has documented that the grizzlies will eat up to 40,000 miller moths a day grizzlies. by grizzlies by turning rocks over on high elevation talus piles it is incredibly important for their um, winter uh, s- uh, snooze.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a grizzly scooping up moths.
5: Yes. Well, it disturbs <laughs> them while they're sleeping during the day, and often they'll just land all over the bear and the bear will lick them <laughs> off. There, uh, I read that they're worth a half a ca- calorie each.
1: <laughs> okay, so, there, <laughs> so <laughs> there's your daily serving uh, allotment there. <laughs> yes,
5: yes. And, uh, there's occasional black bear that makes it up there too, although they certainly don't want have run-ins with the
1: grizzlies (laughs) so uh how did you get interested in moths
5: um i've always admired the butterflies and there's a wonderful woman in town jan chu a retired science teacher who uh, for the boulder county open space system um monitors butterfly populations in the parks, and I have joined her team, have learned a tremendous amount over the years uh, between her graciously sharing her knowledge and the rest of the people who go out with her. And between them, they are experts on the plants that the butterflies are nectaring on, on different habitats. Uh, it's been an amazing and a very
1: privileged mm. experience. So how do you monitor moths? What, what does moth monitoring entail? Well, um, the moths, as uh, there
5: are a few diurnal, crepuscular, most are nighttime creatures. They, for reasons a scientists can't explain very well or thoroughly, they are attracted to lights and the broad-spectrum lights, like the black lights, and um, the um, wait a minute, I have to the mercury vapor <laughs> lights, <laughs> right. which throw huge amounts of light far distances. They they come into those, and they either just land on a sheet, and the but and the uh, scientists who studies.
1: Yeah, say that. Say that one more time.
5: Lepidopterist. So that's a scientist
1: who studies moths
5: and butterflies. And
1: butterflies. That's
5: right. That that family. <laughs> they um, will come and either land on a sheet and they'll do counts, or they fly ah. into specially made traps where they are then um, either collected and photographed and released or collected and pinned for museum documentation.
1: Because, yes, there's always this image of the moth being drawn by the moon, or a candle flame, for that matter.
5: This is true. (laughs) They, they, They do, and again, they just try to figure out exactly why they come to light, and there are some theories that hold water well, and others that the scientists are left scratching their heads. Oh,
1: well, good. It's always good to leave scientists scratching their heads, it yes. gives them more to do, <laughs> keeps them off the street. So, um, uh, some people have things called moth parties. So, uh, I, I, I imagine moths wearing little party hats or something. What is a moth party? <laughs>
5: We were fortunate, um, through my connections with JAN and the High Country Lepidopter Society, I have met a lot of different scientists in the field, both Lepidopters and entomologists, which are people who study all insects, um, and uh, convinced them that they had to come to unincorporated Boulder County to survey what species uh, might be out in the wilds there. I don't know if you can call it wild, but
0: in an agricultural, yes, in
5: an agricultural yes, right. an area. And um, they, I have a whole list of some of the biggest names in entomology and lepidoptery uh, coming for an Audubon, uh, Boulder County Audubon event. I'm sorry it is full. I cannot <laughs> open it up to the general public. The response has been overwhelming.
1: So that one's full, but what if someone is Gung-ho for a moth party. Can they set one up themselves?
5: They certainly can. Um, Just putting your your lights on at night and going out and um, photographing what you see. There's a wonderful website, bugguide.net. Bugguide.net.
1: Bugguide.net
5: that you can post the pictures to. It is monitored by many, many aficionados and scientists who will try and identify it for you. And you are contributing to a broad base of knowledge through crowdsourcing, and it's a wonderful citizen scientist adventure. There are many, many websites who will tell you exactly how to set up lights and or light traps that uh, you can explore. Uh, do a simple... Uh, search in quotes, moth lighting, and you'll be amazed how many pop up.
1: So would a moth party be setting up some good, appropriate lighting and inviting friends over and and seeing the different kind of moths? Do, do they take them off like birders do, you know?
5: Well, most people cannot identify them that well, and there's certainly new species being found all the time. Um, if you can get a Lepidopterist who specializes in moth to come, you have a good chance of at least getting them into the right um, genus. The, um, I think people are getting more and more interested in insects in general especially the Odinata, which are the damselflies and dragonflies, the beetles. Uh, moss are a huge family worldwide. Uh, they're second or third in occurrence to um, the uh, beetles. So um, get out there and and see what comes to your lights. It is fascinating, and the kids love it, too. Oh, they yeah. really, really. And in the last couple of weeks, I've had the wonderful antlion adults come. They're called doodlebugs.
1: So, uh, and if you want a lepidopterist, how do you find one?
5: Well, go go. Uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science has a lovely department of entomology, and you can certainly contact the scientists there. Um, CSU has the Gillette Museum, another very big collection of moths and butterflies, which can be open to the public by special arrangement.
1: And uh, does. Older Denver, have any unique uh, moths that aren't seen elsewhere, like in the Rocky Mountain area? Is there some special species around here?
5: That's what we're trying to discover.
1: <laughs> but none have none have been seen yet that are not, unique to that area. Not that I am aware of. Ah, so uh, have a party, turn on the turn on those special moth lights, and uh, have some friends over and take some pictures, right? Take some pictures,
5: get them on the web, and get excited. And
1: that uh, website to post your pictures was, again?
5: Bugguide.net, amongst others.
1: Bugguide.net. And are there any other websites people who are interested may want to go to?
5: ProjectNoah.org, another crowdsourcing site. Um, The Skeptical uh lepidopteris is a good one i like
1: the name of that
5: lots lots of uh, uh different information about how and why uh by a man who actually used to work at Denver Museum of Nature and Sciences, now in Chicago.
1: Well, thank you very much, Pam.
5: My pleasure.
1: We've been speaking with citizen scientist Pam Piambino, who's representing the Boulder County Audubon Society. She talked about why moths deserve our affection and attention and how you, too, can hold a moth party. Find out more and find like-minded people at the Boulder County Nature Association website.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced by me.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Shelley compliments Garage Band.
0: Plus, a few other musicians mixed in. We'll put them on our website. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.
0: And I'm Shelley Schlender.